Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Brian, what's crack with you today? What's up, Dean? We're back uh, doing a case study, which I don't think we've done in a while. No. It's been it's been a few, um, but yeah, getting, getting cracking into a case study, which is going to be quite relevant for a lot of people, or at least a lot of our a lot of our clients uh i know a lot of people who are doing the dublin city marathon this year and um, so we're going to do a case study on this as you'll already know based on the title of the podcast um the uh do you want to start giving us the, the rundown of the the profile here yes sir so we have a 35 year old gentleman so he's a male he's five foot ten he's 92 kilograms his body fat was tested through a DEXA scan, and it came out to 28%. Uh, he has good experience with doing marathons before, but he has essentially let his body composition slip, and this is why he has come to us. His um, his goal is to try and hit a sub-four-hour marathon, which is uh, a, quite a feat. He's strength training twice per week, and I suppose... He is realistic in terms of his time frame with regards to tightening up his body composition before the the Dublin City Marathon, and then obviously working around proper fueling and supplementation strategies to make sure that he is able to smash that goal. So that is generally the 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 general profile. I know we usually give some of these people jobs and stuff like that, but I think in this context, um, you know, we can just work around some general considerations around his nutrition um, his training and the body composition considerations because I think that that's kind of the the juicy parts of of this case study but you can if you're listening to this you can imagine him having whatever job he likes so whatever comes to uh, for some reason it just came into my mind that he's a circus clown so let's just call he's a circus clown that's his job so there you go Ah, why'd you have to do that, Dean? Now we have to factor in all the extra activity he does from clown. <laughs> okay, veto that. Never mind. Yeah, let's just uh, go back to when he was jobless and people can just imagine however it is that they want. Um, yeah, so like I said, this is, this is pretty relevant to to a lot of people. Um, like I said, a lot, of, a lot of my clients are gearing up to do the the Dublin City Marathon at the end of October in this year. Um you know, we're in last week in January now almost. By the time this goes out, it'll probably be the last week of January. So he's got about 10 months uh or thereabouts um to try and lose uh, 10 to 12 percent body fat. Um so like we could probably Oh, as a as a rough estimate, say that's going to be you know, is that going to be ten to twelve percent of his body weight? Like, yeah, it won't it won't entirely be right because he you know probably lose some, uh, some water weight and stuff along the way. But he's also going to be dialing in his his marathon nutrition uh, related to the training he's doing. So I think it's I think it's an okay heuristic to use that. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like I think, you know, um when you consider his height and you know, body fat tested via DEXA, you know, I would say a, a man of that stature um would still be able to compete at a very high level 
you know, once he's once he's below that sort of 20% body fat. Um, and you know, around, you know, somewhere around 80 to 85 kg is a nice, you know, even if you look at BMI, which, you know, again has some, you know, it has many faults in it, but even if we use that sort of BMI chart, that, that that's still a healthy range um to be in for someone that that, that is five foot ten. So I think that that's definitely realistic. Um and it also means that we don't have to you know, be overly aggressive with our fat loss strategy. Um, now we can, of course, if he, if he was to come to us and say, I just want to get this done as quickly as possible. I have no social occasions coming up. I just want to smash this out, get as lean as possible, as quickly as possible. And then I can focus on just the marathon running. But realistically, doing this in a sort of a more moderate way allows us to conserve his performance while simultaneously losing body fat. And, you know, it, losing 10% of your weight might seem a lot, but, you know, if you've got subs or, you know, around six to nine months to, to do this, it's, um, it is very realistic. Yeah. Because, you know, if we, if we were taking, like, again, this is, this is how you and I are thinking about this. It's like, okay, if someone signs up with us, um, we're going to have the whole year mapped out as much as possible you know we have a timeline broken down every week is accounted for like the kind of objectives for the week uh are there in terms like yeah in terms of what we're actually working on um we get people to fill in all their events that they have coming up so we can work around them and you know that's not only uh like it's not only social stuff but also like sporting events obviously the, the marathon itself will be in there but I know we didn't specify this, but, you know, it's feasible. This guy could want to do like a half marathon or whatever. Maybe he does a race like that uh, during the summer or something. Um, just so he has something closer to aim at um, and do a bit of a tester for this stuff. So, we, you know, we can kind of yeah, come up with potential parameters like that. But um, we'll have his training. Well, obviously, we're not you know, deciding on his training, but we'll want to know what his training schedule is going to look like right so uh you know people who are getting ready for the for the marathon um you know depending on how much experience they have um because i was talking to to a client about this uh, the other day they're like you know okay well how far out do i need to start kind of programming for my training for the marathon and like you know she has lots of running experience so i was like you know you you're already doing like pretty decent mileage so you know you could probably get away with you know, three months maybe at at minimum. Um, now more is generally better. Like the more time you have to prepare prepare for this stuff is generally better. Um, but you know, let's just assume he's he's got a plan in place now for that's going to lead him into the marathon. Um, you know, around ten months is is maybe a bit longer than than a lot of people will, will give or need. But let's just go with that. Um, so I'll have the, the training mapped out. I'd be pretty interested in when is like longer runs are going to be, um, throughout that process. Cause like, it'll, it'll probably start to taper off, uh, you know, just, just from experience doing this with people, it'll, it'll start to taper off, you know, about four to six weeks out from the marathon. So like all the longest runs and things will be done by then. And then it's kind of lifting fatigue um and just getting the body ready for the actual race itself right um so this, these are all the things we're, we're thinking about in terms of planning ahead and that will you know the relevance of that will become clear as we go through this this uh, episode um but yeah you're, he's not looking at a huge amount of weight loss per month is, is where i've been going with this point um 
like it's only about maybe a kilo a month. That's if he takes the entire time to get to that point, which he may not. You know, we when we're planning for this, we might say, look, we have 10 months here, but let's let's get the, the fat loss taken care of um in eight months, let's say, for example. And then you have the last couple of months, literally you can just bring him out of the little bit of a deficit that he was in, let him just keep performing well, lift any fatigue that might have accumulated over the, the training cycles, um, and then go in a, as well field as possible. But it's basically it's it's not a lofty goal in terms of the, the actual fat loss and weight loss. There's plenty of time to do it, which means that you know the deficit of calories that he's gonna be in is gonna be pretty small, you know, because he's only yeah. trying to lose like let's just, you know, let's just say, okay, he's trying to lose about a kilo a month, right? That's that's not a lot. Um yeah. it's only one percent of his body weight per month. You could easily do, you know, four times that um for yeah. someone in a fat loss phase, right? Uh so yeah, it's pretty um gentle, um, which will be good in, in terms of preserving his performance. Um and, and you know, keeping ahead of fatigue, keeping his energy levels up, keeping the, the training going well, because you know that you know, this is not a this is not a fat loss competition. This is a race that he's got a long race that he's going to run. So the, you know, the training needs to go well and the, the adaptations to training need to be facilitated by his nutrition um, and other recovery factors, which we'll get into. So that's just mm. that's an important point. I think for all athletes to consider um, when they have body composition goals, like, you know, you're not a, your sport is not fat loss. Your sport is your sport. So keep that yeah. in mind and, and, you know, work with, with that in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like there will, there will be, when it comes to a lot of this stuff, there is usually a sweet spot with regards to levels of leanness being performance enhancing. So in a lot, you know, in, in most sports, typically speaking, not carrying around excessive amounts of weight will make you better specifically for things like you know football rugby running martial arts etc you know it's generally going to be it's generally going to be a positive thing up to a certain point uh maybe the exception here is sumo wrestling but i don't know if we have any listeners that actually do sumo wrestling if, if you're out there i'd be very interested to hear from you so um but yeah, so I think with this guy, like 28% body fat, if we go off the DEXA scan, definitely getting him getting him sub 20 will 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 uh, give him performance benefits, without a doubt. Now, that does come to the point whereby like, like any sort of balancing act that you do with body fat reduction slash levels of leanness and calorie intake, you know, there will be that point where you just have to dip into consistent low energy for long enough periods of time whereby yes what's required to get you leaner is now starting to to really dip into your ability to push yourself in in training you know so it's kind of about finding that sweet spot and as brian said it's not like you know it's not a fat loss competition but there will be some performance benefits um to be had by being lighter because it's essentially just like if this guy is 92 kg now and he's 82 kg, it's like he just took a, a bag of books that was 10 kg off his back, off his back um, when he's running and across 26.2 uh, 
uh, miles. That's pretty damn significant, you know. Um, so I think these are these are the things to think about. But as I say, it's not necessarily like if we if we got him to eight percent, I don't think that that's going to be. You know, first of all, that would take twice as long um, to to do, and the first ten percent and the last ten percent is a completely different story in terms of the effort that is required to get there um and the detriments to his performance like what you what you might actually see for the first 10 percent is he gets leaner um and his hormonal environment improves maybe you know increases in testosterone reductions in inflation because excess adipose tissue is inflammatory in some capacity whereas the second 10 percent especially once he starts to get to dip below like say 13 percent it, it might actually the hormonal environment might actually change the other way you know he might actually have to start to have detriments to his performance and especially I, I don't know if we mentioned this in the profile but he's doing strength training twice per week you know these are all things that are affected as well so you know as boring as it sounds there is a balance and a sort of a, a sweet spot in the middle that is probably going to be ideal for, for most of you, unless, of course, you're listening to this and you're an elite athlete where you need to just squeeze out the absolute maximum from everything. But this guy's a recreational athlete. Um, and you know, I'm assuming it's people that are doing the Dublin Marathon or marathon running in some capacity recreationally listening to this. And essentially, you don't need to be shredded um, to do very well. In, in, in endurance events um, but being leaner in some capacity will definitely have performance improvements so yeah a lot of endurance athletes are obviously on that kind of lean side especially runners but a lot of that is like facilitated by the fact that they're kind of notorious for not eating enough as well yeah like under fueling in endurance sports is very common um and in the same vein, not consuming enough micronutrients is also uh, quite common uh, for that reason. It's, a lot of it is down yeah. to like the, a lot of it is just down to the the amount of time they spend training, you know, because the, the training sessions yeah. are long. Um, you know, I did a talk for a, a triathlon club there at the start of the week. And, you know, when you have to train bike running and swimming, you know, it's a lot of training sessions. Um and you can just end up not having time to eat, like eat enough meals, I suppose. Like even I, you know, I, my training is set up uh, to train twice a day, three times a week. Right. Um, with a, a potential bonus cardio session, if, if my recovery is good enough. Um, but even on those days when I'm training twice a day, like I do find it sometimes a bit more challenging to get the, the food in or to get it in and like, healthful ways or more healthful ways um so you can definitely see how that how that happens um but yeah we we've got some estimates on his um his say say like let's say he is track on a track his food and stuff um so we have estimate or you know, even if he's not but still these numbers are relevant so we got his estimated uh requirements um i mean with probably these are probably with more significant fat loss targets in mind so we probably actually add a, few, a bit onto this so it's probably looking around like 3200 to 3500 calories or so per day um you know we'll take take protein taking protein to be about two grams uh per kilo body weight just uh, put that at 190 grams per day um because he is training a lot and he's he's 
uh, got performance goals. The the fat I uh, have set at uh, I think point eight grams per kilo body weight. Um, so that's seventy five grams of fat per day, and the carbs are at about uh, four fifty. Um, and actually, those numbers actually be a little bit higher for the fat and carbs now because the the calories that I just gave are a little bit higher than what I estimated for because the the original estimates I, I put in were for slightly more aggressive fat loss. Um, so yeah, you probably go up to maybe one gram of, of fat per uh, kilo body weight, um, and then add in some more carbohydrates there as well. Um, so that's what you'd look at going with, but I, I want to make the point here that, you know, with setting up someone's nutrition for something like this, as much as like a calculator is useful, um, and this is, this is like a total daily energy expenditure calculator, for example, as much as useful as that can be. Um, and especially if you're, let's say you're a coach listening to this and you don't have that much experience, you know, you probably use calculators more. Uh, versus you know i don't use them that much these days i usually have a good sense for where someone should be at based on what their goals are and what their targets are um so yeah it's it's like compared to when i started coaching people i would use these things a lot more uh not nearly as much nowadays um because you just get a sense for it through experience but the uh point i want to make here is that it's a lot more useful to monitor what is actually happening in practice and in the person in front of you than it is to say, you know, oh yeah, well, the, the numbers from the calculator are are the gospel, right? Um, you know, because that's let's say you put you give this guy 3,500 calories a day, and in two weeks' time he's uh, you know, he's gained a bit of weight. It's like, okay, well, either those numbers were not appropriate for him. And um, because the estimates are just a, like they're a good estimate, but they're still just an estimate at the end of the day. And there's going to be individual variation to this. Um, or there's some problem with his reporting and his adherence uh, or a combination of those things, which can also happen depending on, especially if someone is not very experienced with tracking food. Um, there can be a lot of error in the first couple of weeks and you help them iron those out you know, just not selecting the right foods um, from the database and things like that. Um, but basically, you want to monitor the changes and make adjustments based on that. So, okay, what has happened with, say, body weight over a two-week period based on everything else, based on his uh, proposed nutrition and proposed intakes and his, and his um, the activity levels that he did and so on, then make adjustments from there, okay? Um, as opposed to getting too hung up on well, the calorie said it was this, or the calculator said it was this. So what's wrong, right? It's probably just because it's not entirely appropriate for that individual. Yeah, yeah. And I have a, a I think it's like 15 minute solo podcast um, on how to use my fitness pal properly. So if you just like search Dino Bino, how to use my fitness pal properly, it'll come up something, something to that effect, right? It's It's on the list of, podcast and that'll sort of help you navigate some of the common mistakes but yeah that is kind of a problem that a lot of people say it's like oh i put my numbers into this gallery calculator or maybe they even put their their numbers into my fitness pal which usually always spits out the incorrect um, or not appropriate uh, calories and macros when it comes to, to different goals and i think with endurance or with with athletes in general a lot of them are so used to because again this is just 
you know, diet culture, the preoccupation with leanness. A lot of athletes are so used to just underfueling because it's it's you know it's like oh no I just need to underfuel because like I have a few athletes at the moment, and um, one of them is a footballer and like he is actually I, I we had a conversation one day about like oh like you should eat this you know you should be eating this much on your training days and you know have your this amount of carbs an hour before your training and I actually think you'll be surprised um at how much of a boost this will give you um. And he was kind of like, I don't want to say he was skeptical, but he was he was kind of like, okay, I'll I'll give it a go. And he he voice messaged me then, like literally right after his training session, he was just like, fuck me, I can't, I cannot believe how much of a difference this made because he's so used to like just not feeling correctly, right? Um, and that's what nutritionists are for, you know. They sort of our job is essentially to help you recognize these little gaps um, and help you navigate them. So that you can kind of get the best of both worlds in terms of like you're obviously achieving your goals and um, with regards to maybe body composition stuff, but it's not at the um, subtraction of performance, which is often what happens because people just go too low. Um, so yeah, like I think as Brian said, you make a general estimate, the sort of the Harris Benedict formula or the um, so some of the other formulas. That, that you'll see the Cunningham equation, etc. You know, these can all be useful, but they're just starting points. And you have to see how the body responds um, to the implementation of certain calories and um, and macros. And provided that you are accurate with your implementation of specific calories and macros, then that gives you the information through the tracking of weight data and how you're feeling perceptually and how your training performance is, et cetera, et cetera. Then you can make distinctions on whether to go stay where you are or go down or go up or whatever it is, you know? So that's kind of why, you know, even through the process of coaching, that's why the check-ins are so important because it's like, right, this gives us an opportunity to assess the effect, what our recommendations is having um, and then develop some initial actions um, going forward. So yeah. Um, so I suppose the next thing that we should probably talk about is maybe some food selection related stuff that he should consider. Now, like we've obviously talked at length about like diet quality and stuff like that. So we don't need to labor on that too much. But do you want to cover a little bit about like, right, what are some common things that we need to make sure that he's hitting from a food selection perspective? Mm. Yeah. And I think um, you did a post on this, I think this week, um, the, the context of it was, you know, people who are trying to bulk or gain weight make the mistake of of eating like a person who's trying to lose fat um, in terms of like food selection, in terms of like thought process. And look, you know, the vast majority of adults are overweight or obese, right? So the message of of how to go about eating for fat loss is going to be more pervasive that makes sense it's for the majority of people but you just have to keep the goal in mind right so like we're looking at these guys this guy's targets right so it's a high carb intake um because that's going to go a long way to fueling performance um we're going to talk about you know endurance sports and the role of um fat oxidation and in, in terms of supplying energy there dean's going to cover that in a bit um but, you know, set, set the carb targets high because of his training volume. That's a good rule of thumb. Um, if Like if he was just some guy who has no real performance aspirations, you could set up the fats and carbs just however you wanted based on 
what his preference was, you know, obviously within reason in terms of the um the quality of the diet, but um because he is a an athlete looking for performance, um, you know, it's it's important that his carbohydrate intake is higher. His protein intake is is reasonably high. Um, you know, it's not crazy high because uh you know you need to need to leave room for carbohydrates as well you know that can be a that can be a common issue with athletes i think right that um they can overdo it on the protein a little bit um so his protein is like i said earlier set around two grams per kilo which which should be enough to um support recovery um maintain health and um you know prevent any obviously muscle loss or anything and the fact that his his fat loss goal is done over such a long period of time there's not much of a risk of, of muscle loss anyway he is doing a bit of strength training presumably from a injury prevention point of view um for the most part that's you usually see that in in like you know in well-designed endurance programs they'll still do some strength work um usually a couple of times a week fairly minimal volume but like minimum effective dose for volume but um, does help in injury prevention, does help with uh, performance as well directly in terms of, you know, actual muscular strength. Um, but in terms of food selection, yeah, you're basically just, you need to break this down across the meals per day. Um, you know, we don't know how many meals this guy's going to eat, but it's going to be between three and five probably feedings per day, whether they're main meals or snacks or some combination. Um, and you're going to roughly like split the protein across those uh, meals. Uh, excuse me, the main meals anyway. And, you know, the the food selection there, uh, I mean, we've covered a lot of this before, but look, we'll, we'll go through it again just in case, just in case someone's listened to this as a standalone episode, which they may well be. Um, so protein sources, you got your meats, fish, poultry, eggs, um, high protein dairy products like, um, high protein yogurts, which are usually going to be the, the fat free or the low fat ones. They just happen to be higher in protein um, than the, the full fat varieties. Um, you got your Kavarg uh, skiers and zero fat Greek yogurts there. Um, the various high protein dairy products like the protein mousses, the protein puddings, uh, the different protein yogurt type things that are available. Um, although some of them don't qualify like technically as yogurt. So you see them, they're labeled as high protein milk product. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. like uh, milk as well is obviously good. Um, cheese is, is a fairly good source of, you know, calcium and protein It is reasonably high in fat though. Um, eggs. I don't know if I mentioned eggs already. And then in terms of plant-based options, you got things like uh, corn, got things like, uh, like soy protein based stuff. So like, you know the soy-based sausages and um, burgers um tofu tempeh you've got uh seitan uh which is isolated uh, wheat protein basically um so they're all the, the kind of best uh, sources when it comes to protein and then you got protein powders in there as well which can be you know usually dairy-based or plant-based or maybe um you know of of bovine origin in terms of like collagen or something like that so um you know you're and then i mean throw protein bars i suppose into the uh like protein dairy products because it's usually whey protein or a mix of whey and collagen in those so those are all the the, the things you're going to be choosing from a, a protein point of view um 
Do you have anything to add there, Dean? Nope. Very comprehensive. Cool. Um, so yeah, you're gonna, you know, obviously have to figure out the protein per meal, roughly speaking. Like when I'm doing this with somebody, it's like, okay, your goal is about 190 grams per day. Um, let's say you're gonna get three main meals and then maybe a bit of protein from snacks as well. Then we break that down into okay, how much actual food is this uh to hit that target per meal, right? So if let's say if they're trying to get around 50, 55 grams of protein per main meal, we'll break that down in food terms, you know, based on the protein content of foods. Um so that they know what they're actually trying to tick off at each meal, because, you know, the tendency is that, uh, you know, if some, if someone has a low protein meal, let's say a low protein breakfast, then all of a sudden their requirements at the subsequent meals is going to be much higher and they end up falling short. Right. So it's just easier to have it reasonably well spread out across the day, better for recovery as well. Um, better for appetite, uh, regulation, if that's relevant. Um, then for carbohydrates, you know, you're, you're going to do something similar Um, might let you discuss Dean, the, the role of uh, maybe carbohydrates in the, the peri training context. If you want to point to some differentiation in those meals versus other meals, do you want to take, take a, a go at that? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think um, what, what's important to consider and this is kind of where the, whole conversation comes in around like right what's healthy carbs versus like refined carbs and stuff like that right so typically speaking you do want to get your as an athlete you're going to utilize both the sort of commonly considered healthy carbs like oats and brown rice and brown wraps and lentils and beans and you know those sort of high fiber carbs which are considered healthier um typically because they have the fiber component they're complex carbohydrates they digest slowly um so you do want to have like the bulk of your diet to be those types of carbs because you know your fiber is obviously very very important for for general health um and you know throughout the day it's it's going to be important for making sure that you're you're full again if if because fat loss is a is an important point here. We want to make sure that appetite regulation is is considered. And after protein fiber is kind of the next most important thing um, around appetite regulation that we want to consider. So we can we have all these kind of like healthy carbs that um people will typically say, you know, we want most of your diet like that. Then what people will say is because it's a false dichotomy, <laughs> it's like white bread is bad, white pasta is bad, white rice is bad, sugar is bad because it is refined. Um, and it has, you know, in some cases lost some of the nutrients, which is true, um, and it digests a lot faster, right? But this is a misnomer because as an athlete in any capacity, especially especially as an athlete where you're um, using a lot of carbohydrates, these refined, car these refined carbs, the white carbs, the sugar, you know, even like sweets and stuff like that, Lucasaid sports, et cetera, these are actually really useful for you at specific times of the day, depending on where you are where, when you're training, right? So if you need energy fast, either very close to your training, an hour, 30 minutes, 15 minutes before, or during your training session while you're running, um, then it makes sense for you to have something that's going to digest easily, 
quickly so that you can utilize that energy very fast. It does not, there's a reason why you don't see um, a mixture of brown rice and broccoli at the little stands in a marathon, right? Because that's just not very good fueling um, foods when you're in the middle of a race and you're, you're essentially your gut is not in a place to, to digest those kind of foods because essentially high fiber foods or complex carbohydrates, you know, the, the brown variations of these carbohydrates um, or, you know, like your beans and your lentils, et cetera, your oats, those are kind of, um, well, oats is kind of, it's in a bit of a middle ground, but the high fiber foods, those are going to digest slowly. So during the day, it's great to have that because, you know, you want something that's digesting slowly, you're getting the fiber, the health benefits, but kind of in around that window of training, either before training, during training, or perhaps even after training, if you want to sort of get the, the replenishment of um, your glycogen stores uh, going a bit faster, then those refined carbohydrates are very, very good. So this is kind of where you might have something like uh, say a pre-workout meal for you could be a couple of bagels white bagels with a little bit of jam or maybe a bowl of cereal like cocoa pops or something like that with some skimmed milk um so you're essentially getting these getting these more refined carbohydrates that digest faster that you can utilize uh, and pull the carbs and, and and out of them quickly and um, which is useful for um in those instances right so this is kind of why you want because he like he has a lot of carbs to play with here like you know 450 grams is is a fair bit so like during the day he could very feasibly get you know 300 to 350 grams be of you know your spuds and your oats and your brown rice or brown wraps or doesn't even like even a normal meal. he can have white rice you know whenever he wants in a sense but just to kind of illustrate this and then you know he could he could feasibly have you know, 100 grams of his carbs donated to the pre-workout window or potentially during his uh, training session if it is particularly long. Now, I'll get into some more advanced nutrition strategies in a moment whereby we might intentionally not train with carbohydrates available, um, something called fat adaptation. But before we kind of move on to that, Brian, have you anything to add in terms of like, the, the the sort of the total amount of carbs, the type of carbs that he's eaten and the timing of carbs that, that I mentioned there as well. No, I think you think you covered it pretty well. Um just yeah to reiterate that point that you know some foods that are considered carbohydrate rich foods, like the the range of carb density, i.e. the the carbs per hundred grams can vary quite a lot. Uh, and this is something I was talking to the, the triathletes about. Uh, earlier on in the week so i have the example here of um you know to get 40 to 50 grams of actual carbohydrates that could come from like 60 grams of like say sweets or jellies um but it, it could also come from 700 grams of strawberries right which all right there's that's a, a more than a tenfold difference in the amount of food you'd have to eat to get that much carbohydrates and you know that's not too this is why context matters. Like, I'm not saying that one is better than the other there. Like if you have a uh, distinct fat loss goals and you're trying to stay full, then obviously getting the, the 40, 50 grams of carbs from nearly a kilo of strawberries is going to be preferable than like the tiny little 60 grams of, of sweets. But if you're an athlete looking for the, you know, like you said, the quick hit um, during or before a training session, um, or you're just someone who's, 
having a hard time getting all their carbs in through, uh, you know, the less refined sources, then that's kind of a, a godsend to you. That's like, okay, cool. I can, I can get actually quite a lot of carbs here without, you know, feeling excessively full or running into, into digestive upset. I think for these, these kind of, uh, athletes, like you said, it's a lot of carbs to play with. You, you don't have to get excessive with the fiber. Once you get over maybe 30, 35 grams a day, um, you're probably in a good territory where you don't need to uh, consume a huge amount more. Cause like, we still want this person eating like, you know, five, if not eight portions of like fruit and veg per day, ideally. Um, but they don't need to, you know, get excessive with it um, and make life more difficult for themselves basically. Um, so yeah, I just want to make that point. And what was the other point I wanted to make? Um, no, I can't remember. It'll come back to me. But uh, no, I think that's, oh yeah, sorry, I was going to say that, sorry, that point that I'm making now is is going to be even more relevant when we talk about carb loading, right, in the context of the actual race um, or practicing for the race, right, which we'll, we'll get to. Or do you want to do, do, do the race nutrition on its own or do you want to do it now as part of the carb, carb conversation? Yeah, like we, we, can, we can just talk about it. Like I suppose when you're coming up to competition day, um, what you want to do is you want to completely maximize and saturate your your glycogen store. So just for anyone that doesn't know, glycogen is your body's store of carbohydrates. So it's primarily in the liver and muscle, um, although other organs have capacity for glycogen uh, synthesis as well. But it's just st- so small in comparison to the liver and glycogen or liver and muscle, should I say, that we don't really uh, think about it too much. But essentially, your liver. And your muscles have a capacity to suck up carbs like a sponge um, and it's stored as glycogen. So glycogen is basically just this, uh, basically a bunch of like glucose molecules like strung together or attached together um, and it's packed nice and tightly um, in, in, in the liver and, and the muscles so that it then can be utilized very easily um, for energy, essentially, right? Um and what we want to do here is make sure that that's at max capacity for competition. Okay. Um, now, I think what's interesting about this is provided that we keep his carbohydrates daily consumption relatively high, um, although we will might make some modifications here and there. It you know this and this is the problem with low carb diets is because if you're a low carb, if you're chronically low carb and you're an endurance athlete you're missing out on the performance benefits of having high glycogen stores because the important the, the important consideration with having high glycogen stores, i.e. high carb stores in this case, I'll, I'll, they're synonymous, not in the scientific world, but for for what for this discussion, um, essentially there that's what's going to allow you to sort of push the pace a little bit more should you need to, right? So it's it's going to give you the, your muscles that quick energy to push it on a little bit if you if you need to. So when it comes to competition day, and this is for a lot of athletes, but specifically for endurance athletes, uh, marathon runners, triathletes, et cetera, on the days leading up to the competition, ideally, you know, maybe three or four days out, what you're essentially going to do is massively upregulate your intake of carbohydrates. So this is like somewhere between seven all the way up to 10, maybe even 12, 13 grams uh, per kilogram, depending on the, the the size of the person and the, the event and stuff like that. Um, and this is, a, this is a lot of carbs, right? So to give you some context, seven grams for this guy would be 
at his current rate of 92, but let's assume that he is going to be racing at 82 um, when we get him down there. It's 575, so that's another 125 more than he's already eating. So if he was if he was to go to 10, that'd be 820 grams of carbs. So we're nearly getting to like a you know a kilo of uh, of of carbs here. So it's quite a lot. And as Brian said, that can be difficult to get uh, through brown rice and popcorn, right? Um, so you know, but essentially what we're trying to do is we're just maximizing the potential for that the liver has um, and the and the muscles have for this glycogen so that it's you know you're basically i analogize it as if um although there is problems with this analogy but it's it's useful for people to think about it it's basically like your carbs are petrol and you're you're a car and you're putting the petrol into the car and essentially we on before the competition day we want to nearly be going into the petrol station and having petrol running all over the floor because you're just you're just maxed out essentially right um and you know if you're doing that all the time, that's a problem. But in the comp in the context of competition, this is actually something that we want to do. Um, so yeah, that's basically what you would do. That's how you do a carb load. Essentially, is you know you can see you if you can do it twenty four hours before your competition if you really need to. Like say for example, you're in a context where it's like you just find out that you have a competition and you need to do it in a day. You can, but that's where you'd have to go towards nine ten grams per kg. Whereas if you give yourself like maybe three or four days it allows you to sort of spread it out a little bit more so that you don't just have to eat so much carbs. Um, and that's generally what we, what we would recommend. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I usually say is like the, the quantity and the duration in terms of how many days of carb loading you do will be determined by the, the kind of duration of the competition really. So, you know, you're, you've got, you've got, events ranging from say 90 minutes maybe even less maybe even like say 60 to 90 minutes for some sports um up to you know 8 10 12 hours for some of these uh really long endurance races right so obviously the person going for 90 minutes doesn't need the same amount as the, as the person going for 12 hours okay so that's how we kind of come to uh deciding how much th this person is going to have um and as dean said like the, the yeah you're just not going to be able to get that quantity of carbohydrates in through quote unquote healthy sources or just you know the, the more fiber sources which is what we recommend for most of the time so you'll have to lean on some of these uh more refined higher sugar options um which is good. And I just want to make the point here as well that like, yeah, it's, it's the stuff that we mentioned, like, you know, going down to McDonald's and getting a lot of fries and like a Big Mac is not carb loading, right? There's a huge amount of fat that goes with that. Um, so just consider the fat content. Cause like uh, people make that mistake a lot where they're like, Oh yeah, I'll go eat like a rake of donuts. And it's like a lot of fat in those still a lot of fat in things like pizza. Right. So you do want to do you want to consider the things we actually talked about, you know, the cereals, um, sweets, uh, uh, fruit juice can be useful. Um, other liquid sources of, of carbohydrates, you know, coconut water um, sports drinks, uh, you know, they're all soda, just in general soda. Um, although the carbonation might make you feel a bit more full. But, you know, those are the things we're looking at. You can't you can't go and like you know, carb load on like fish and chips or something like that. So uh, don't, don't make that mistake. Unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, I know you're saying that it can be, it can be tricky to do, but I have a client who almost, well, we joke about this, but like he says, he wants to do endurance stuff just so he can keep these carb loads on a regular basis. Uh, cause we did a last, last year for, uh, the ring of Kerry and like, uh, what the, I can't remember now. I think he got up to like 700, maybe grams or so. Um, mm. And there's another point I'll make while we're on this subject is that you cannot test your carb loading for the first time just before the race, right? Um, so this is like, this goes back to the planning that we talked about at the start. You know, I will see when someone has their longest uh, training runs, um, say in this case, like, you know, someone might run, you know, 30, 35K um, in their longest training run for a marathon. Um, so it makes good sense that we could, put in a test carb load before that right and it wouldn't maybe not the same duration and maybe not the same quantity as um for the actual marathon like if, if someone's doing 10 grams per kilo for two days before the actual marathon then you know potentially they do eight grams per kilo for two days before like a 30k run for example but you just want to get a, a feel for this you want to see how they respond um but mostly i think you just want to see that you need to see yourself uh, as the athlete how you're going to do this you know because uh you know it, it does take like if you do a little bit of thinking about it, a bit of preparation um it's fine and if you have some awareness of your nutrition it's it's fine but you need to be like cool i remember i did this carb load previously these are the types of foods that i ate and i know that works for me to hit those targets then i can just go and do those again for the uh for the actual race setting um so that's important so we've covered a lot of race nutrition there um just while we're on the subject of carbohydrates um just on the like people often wonder about the you know the day of the race um we can talk about that now or we can talk about that in the context of supplements in a little bit dean i will say just for now that um you know your pre-race nutrition just looks very like your pre-training nutrition right uh it doesn't actually vary that much um and the real importance is the actual going to the petrol station before you go to the race um uh, as dean talked about and, and analogized there so and uh, moving on um so we, we we were talking about macronutrients so we go back to fat uh fat foods and then we can i suppose yeah then we can talk about the you can talk about the you know the the train low um fat adaptation theory um yeah that that'll that'll make sense to to do together i think yeah yeah so um fat content is relatively low um in comparison to his carbs here but it's still you know as brian said 0 0.8 grams um per uh, per kg um so that's still within the range like of uh, essential fats that you need um in terms of choices here you're going to want to sort of focus mostly on uh, the healthy fats as much as possible so things like extra virgin olive oil avocados maybe some fatty fish some nuts or nut butter um other oils plant-based oils um don't be buying into the whole thing of seed oils being terrible for your health um that's a lot of nonsense um 
and we essentially want to choose these foods because there are choose these fat sources because they're high in mono and polyunsaturated fats and these are typically healthier for you specifically with regards to your heart health so we now have pretty good data that suggests that chronically high levels of saturated fat and saturated fats are your um, very processed fatty meats um you know your chocolate your even things like coconut oil um you know a lot of the process ultra processed foods will have higher amounts of saturated fat in them and um, cheeses some dairy products like cheeses and butter and stuff like that we have pretty good information now or pretty pretty good research to suggest that cr like chronically high across a lifetime essentially we would say or you know years and decades is a risk factor towards um cardiovascular events um and uh, basically atherosclerosis um so we want to try and minimize that especially you know because like again you could be the type of person that has the genetic propensity to be very resilient against something like this and you could eat fries all your life and never have any issues equally you could have the genetic propensity towards atherosclerosis and cardiovascular events and you could have a heart attack when you're 45 or something like that right so we, we don't want to take any chances with this in many cases so this is why we recommend um trying to have most of your fats um be from those healthy sources i.e keep your saturated fat below about 10 percent um of your daily intake or less than a third of your total fats and that's the general recommendation. But again, you know, if you have a day where you, your saturated fat is 70% of your fat, it's obviously not a problem. We're talking more across longer periods of time, right? Um, so those are kind of the primary fat sources that we want to focus on. Again, with an endurance athlete, you want to try and not have too much fat um, before training. I like, you know, if you're going to have something, a meal or a snack that has fat in it, try and have it, you know, 60 to 90 minutes before um, at a minimum because fat digests slowly in the same way that fiber does. So fat and fiber are kind of the two nutrients that you want to think about, right? Those are good kind of during the day, but as I get closer and closer to my training, I want to try and minimize the amount that's in these meals and snacks because it's going to digest slowly. And obviously, you know, closer to training, you want something that's digesting faster. Um, so before I move on, maybe to talking about the periodization of train low and sort of getting your body better at burning fat do you want to jump in on the the actual fat food selections or anything more about the actual fat macro brain yeah uh, i want to i want to labor on the saturated fat point a little bit longer because um i have seen people uh that i coach that do have a genetic disposition to like say higher cholesterol levels even if their saturated fat intake is not very high um like i've seen people with quite low saturated fat intakes um and still have and like eat very well have a healthy lifestyle etc um and still have elevated cholesterol so genetics does come into this don't assume you know that you're fine just because you your lifestyle is good because i've seen it enough um in the population of people that i've worked with that uh, it, it can happen um one that uh, comes to mind recently is, is just because we're talking about runners it's uh, a client of mine who is a runner um also has amenorrhea 
which we've we've discussed on a previous case study. Um, but in that context, uh, cholesterol levels actually go up um, because you're losing the protective effect of estrogen. Um, in that context, uh, I don't want to I don't wanna explain it too much now because that's not the point of this episode, and that other episode is there. Um, but uh, just to say that, like. She got recent blood work back and her, her her hormonal profile is a lot better, which is great thanks to the work that we've been doing. Um, and her cholesterol has also come down into a normal range, which is pretty cool. All right. Um, but just to make that point, because you know, say amenorrhea and because of the, the underfueling tendency that we talked about earlier, you know, it's not it's not uncommon in these types of athletes, like for, for obviously for women, well, not I shouldn't say obviously, because not everyone listening to this will know what it is, but I will just define it. Amenorrhea is just basically where you lose your menstrual cycle, right? Uh, it can happen for various reasons, but in the one that we're talking about, it's uh, secondary to low energy availability, i.e. basically not eating enough calories versus how much you're expending through exercise, basically to, to loosely define it there. Um, so that's important. And just to put the, the saturated fat point into like in some clearer terms for people so you know let's say we have this guy let's say he's eating uh 3200 calories a day as we said um 10 of that is 320 calories fat has nine calories per gram so you divide that 320 by nine which is about 36 grams of saturated fat per day that he should be trying to stay below basically just so just so people can you know put it into I suppose more more specific terms, and then different foods will have different quantities of saturated fat. There is some nuance to this, where certain types of saturated fat, because they're not all the same, so certain types of saturated fatty acids will have a worse effect on on something like um, cholesterol, using it as a, as a proxy for um, cardiovascular health over the lifetime. Some will have a, a more of a significant impact. Um, than others but that's that's getting kind of outside of the realms of this episode um we, we, but... we should get um i just had an idea there we should actually get maybe alan flanagan on to talk about <laughs> nutrition and heart health at some stage maybe even do a case study cell podcast because i think it is obviously yeah that's actually uh, very very important information so no one knows it better than him so so yeah uh, yeah, that's a good. That's a great show. Let's uh, let's do that. And um, I think yeah, case study format I think is a great idea. So we will do that. Um, but let's now talk about because we're talking about fat. Let's talk about fat adaptation in um, in endurance sports because it is a. I think it's quite an interesting uh, topic. Um, and I gave it. I gave it some time in that talk earlier in the week because of that. Um. And it was one of the questions that people had anyway, so we wanted to go through it. So, will you take us through that, Dean? Like, tell us about the the theory behind it. Like, why? Why? We, well, firstly, define what we mean by trying to train for fat fat adaptation. Um, what are you doing with your nutrition in that context versus normal context? And um, tell us why it might be of benefit to do, and then you know, whether or not basically we'll do it with this, this fellow that we're looking at here. Mm. Yeah. So it is interesting. It's a, it's definitely an emerging 
part of sports nutrition, specifically for endurance sports. Uh, I think it it has some challenges and hurdles still to overcome before it's kind of like, yes, everyone should definitely do this in all contexts, you know, um, which is, you know, you wouldn't do it in all contexts anyway. But um, essentially what we're trying to do here is improve your body's ability to use fat as energy, right? Um, so basically, obviously, you're consuming dietary fat, but you also have a very, very large store of body fat that can be used. So essentially, like this is the reason that why, why we have evolved to synthesize adipose tissue, i.e. body fat, is because it's a really good way of storing energy because from an evolutionary perspective, our ancestors would have had some food and not really known when they're going to get a net, another meal. So that's why we, we we developed this capacity for for body fat. It's an insurance policy in some in some ways, um, and we have a lot of this, right? So for 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 to give you some context, this gentleman at ninety two kg has. 200,000 calories in energy terms in his fat stores. If we were to assume that he has 500 grams of glycogen, which is in his liver and muscle, liver and muscles, he has 2,000 calories of energy. So you can see there's a very big distinction here. There's, there's a huge capacity for energy within our body fat. Now, the problem is from a sporting context, the glycogen and glucose in your bloodstream, i.e. what carbs gets turned into, is much easier and rapidly going to be utilized in that context of glucose versus fat. It, it, we, are, we are not as efficient at using um, fat as an energy source, um, and especially not at higher intensities, right? So essentially what we're trying to do with a fat adaptation strategy, and I'll, and I'll give you the actual rundown on how we do this, is... The reason that we might do this is we get better at burning fat, specifically body fat, but also um, the dietary fat that we consume. And also there is some fat stored in our muscles. It's called intramuscular triglycerides, but it's not that it's not a huge storage, but it is there. Um, we get better at burning this and using it for energy, more efficient at a higher intensity. And this then saves some of the glycogen in our muscles and liver and glucose so that we avoid hitting the wall as fast, right? So I'm sure you've, if you're an endurance athlete, you'll know what that is, but essentially just hitting the wall is you've ran out of glycogen and your body's just like, fuck you, I'm done, <laughs> right? Um, and we want to avoid that as much as possible. And this is why we do the carb loading. This is why you consume carbs during your races is to keep those energy stores up. But with a fat adaptation strategy, you're essentially improving your capacity to burn fat and thus saving the glycogen. Now, how do we do this? So what the, the, there's a few different ways to structure this so that you get the benefits without impairing your, your performance in other areas, right? So essentially what we're trying to do is we're forcing the body to train on low carbs, right? And you might say, well, sure, we've spent half the podcast talking about how we're filling this man full of carbs. Like, you know, what's, this is madness, you know? So it is a little bit counterintuitive. Um, but essentially what we're trying to do is we are strategically placing 
low carb meals or basically just not giving him carbs at certain times and then training on that. And that improves, that basically encourages the body to have to use fat, right? So what this might look like is, let's say, for example, he has a relatively easy training session on a Wednesday morning, right? So it's it's not it's not overly long and it's not overly intense. So he's kind of keeping the pace low. I, I like to kind of think of it as, so they, they usually do the recommendations in VO2 max, but I find that what, what would be more appropriate for people that might be listening to this is the heart rate zones. So around like a zone three or less, if you're kind of using that, um, if you're if you're measuring your, your, your heart rate. And that's typically whereby it's it's not so intense that you're going to start uh, using more of your carbs uh, slash glycogen. But essentially, Wednesday, Wednesday morning is this easy session. So what we might do is, Tuesday night, his last meal could be low carbs. So essentially just mostly protein and fat. Um, and he basically goes to sleep on low carbs. Or he might wake up on, on a Wednesday morning um, or he might combine these strategies and either do that run fasted or if it's kind of late morning and he wants to eat something, his breakfast could be a low carb, a higher fat, higher protein meal. And this is essentially whereby we're just strategically just placing in these low carb meals or some sort of a fast um, training fasted um, so that he goes into that easy training session on lower muscle glycogen and the body's like, right, we don't have much glycogen to use here. So we have to start adapting to this environment of having low glycogen, thus the energy uh, source has to come from fat. And that's basically it. So you're essentially just figuring out, right, where is my lower intensity sessions? And then strategically placing a lower carb or low carb or a, or some level of a fast in there. So essentially the three terminologies that they use is train, train low, sleep low, recover low. So you're training on low carbs. You're going to sleep on low carbs because the next morning session is going to be a, an easy session or you're recovering low. So maybe you do a high intensity session where you are full of carbs. You use your carbs in that high intensity session. You real, you know that the next session is going to be easy. So you intentionally don't consume carbs after the hard session. So that you would normally replenish, but in this case, you're not because you want to train low on the uh, with low carbohydrates um in the next easy session i feel like it is a little bit confusing i've tried my best to sort of explain that there brain is there is there any what what do you make of that in terms of a, an explanation do you think people will will understand that it can be difficult without a visual i find but um that's the meat and potatoes of it yeah no i think i mean obviously i have a pretty good understanding of it as well so i it makes sense to me but no i think i think objectively you have explained it pretty well um i suppose we just need to make it clear that because there is some talk of this it's like oh i could be you know an endurance athlete and like follow a low carb diet just generally and that's not the the best way to go about this so it's train low sleep low recover low compete high is is always yeah. in there as well so you always do your carb load and then the idea is that you'll just be a very metabolically flexible machine on the day that you know won't suffer too many issues with like hitting the wall as they say or bonking 
when you know basically you're you've depleted your muscle glycogen because you having done this training have made it so that you can you can utilize the fat available that's uh, like pretty well um i suppose the only question that people might have here is like so do you have to do this every week or you know is this a period of time that you do this like in a block during the the training cycle and then it's like you gain those adaptations and then you know you can just kind of go back to training high all of the time or what should people think about in, in that context yeah so i think one consideration that that has to be met here is that if you're not that overly fit going into this right if you have to still build fitness it doesn't really make sense to do it if you if you still have to develop fitness this is kind of more where you're getting to the sort of you know you're trying to really squeeze out an extra maybe 5 to 10% at maximum uh, benefits from what you're doing so like i don't think someone that's doing a couch to 5k and then progressing towards marathon training it doesn't make sense for them to do it there's also some arguments being made around like all like you know elite athletes not really benefiting medicine benefiting much from this should i say um and you know that's kind of where some of the opponents of this kind of come in which is fair enough so i think like it makes sense to do it kind of towards the back end as you're kind of like you're, you're, you're going towards your peaking protocol. Obviously, as Brian says, you want to go in with the benefits of being a better at burning fat, but you then want to in tandem combine that with maximum glycogen in, in your muscles, right? So it, it is kind of going to be once you're sort of towards the back end of your, of your, um, macro cycle um in this case so this would be kind of like in this lad's case right let's say we have his body his his body composition is in a nice place and now he's starting to progress towards his peaking protocol then we might start to implement this a little bit more um because again he's focusing primarily on performance after his fat loss phase is is, is done and dusted you know um so that's typically where I would do it. Um, and I think like w once you kind of, once you're happy with your sort of, with body composition, you can continue to do it. Like say you do, you do your competition um, and then you're back to training at a normal level, not necessarily for competition. You can still use this strategy to sort of maintain and conserve those benefits from a metabolic flexibility perspective. Um, and yeah, that, that would be generally um, where I would sit with it in terms of like timelines and periodization. So it's it's not, if you're kind of, think of it like, right, if you're an elite 1% individual or if you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're just starting, probably not for you. If you're somewhere in between that and then towards the back end of your your, your training periodization, then it becomes more realistic for, for, for you to do. Um. And again, this lad is going for a four, a sub, hour, sub four hour marathon. So this is the type of strategy that could potentially help him achieve that. So, yeah, like yeah, it does require a little bit more micromanagement of nutrition than some other strategies, but it's also not that complicated. Hopefully, yeah. by you know, as you said, Dean, it's it's easier uh, described using a visual aid. But um, I think I think you've laid it out pretty clearly. So. People know that that uh, option is in the toolbox. And, you know, since we're talking about, you know, avoiding hitting the wall here in, in training or in racing, um, why don't we talk about um, actual intra-race intra, intra race, um, nutrition, let's say. 
And we haven't touched on hydration at all. Um, and again, as, as we often say, we have a whole podcast on hydration. Um, so we can we can touch on that very briefly because we don't have a lot of time left. Uh, I've yeah. got 10 minutes. So, um, yeah. yeah, let's let's yeah. cover like ultra race. Uh, well, supplementation, but essentially carbohydrates. And we can talk about supplements then around that as well. Um, because that all kind of ties together nicely. So do you want to talk to us about, say, carbohydrates, intra-training or intra-race, and yeah. what, what you're doing there? Yeah. So carbs are generally going to be the most effective supplement in some capacity for endurance athletes. Um, because as I say, it's going to be helpful to have rapidly digested uh, carbs available for that pre-workout window, but the, or pre-training window, but then of course during races and stuff like that and, and training. So, especially once you start to go beyond ninety minutes, as you kind of alluded to earlier, ninety minutes to two hours of of effort, which of course a marathon is, you're really going to want to try and start to take advantage of these um, carb supplements in some capacity, uh, because that's whenever your glycogen stores are starting to deplete, which is obviously what we're trying to uh, maximize through carb loading, but also conserve through the fat adaptation strategies, right? So it really all is just about carbs, carbs, carbs at the end of the day. Um, so during the race, definitely once you start to like go beyond that 90 minutes, it it, it is going to be important to have this um supplementation of of using carb supplements so this can be in the form of like a carb powder that, that you can buy uh energy gels energy bars or even just sports drinks right and what i would recommend and, and again you can combine this with like staying hydrated etc throughout the race but what what i generally recommend is that we do some level of testing as, as brian said you never try something new on the day of competition, but you do some level of testing around some of the different types of supplements that you can use. Some people like Lucasaid Sport or Powerade, um, some people like the gels, some people like the bars, etc. Um, but what you can do is essentially try out some of these different sources and at different grams. And what I mean by grams is here, say for example, Lucasaid Sport has about 30 grams of carbohydrates in a bottle. So you might test out um, that um, during a particular training session. Um, what we're trying to do here is we're assessing the effect that this is having from a performance perspective, but also how your gut tolerates this. So this is important too, because you don't want to overdo it with intra-workout nutrition from a digestive perspective, because digestive discomfort is very common for people um, in endurance races um, because, you know, you're essentially putting the body in a, in a stressful environment and that's not conducive to digestion. So it, it is more stressful on the digestive system. Thus, we want to test these different um, types of foods out or supplements out and also at the different grammages and also the different sort of uh, capacities for the how the stomach feels as well because, you know, if you're drinking a lot of fluid, you know, that can sort of be jostling in the stomach and that can again feel uncomfortable so you want to train the gut's capacity to handle fluids to handle carbohydrates but again you do this you test this out over weeks and months essentially right so you start off with about 30 grams and you can slowly move yourself up towards about 60 grams of carbohydrates um now 
you can go up as high as 90 grams of carbohydrates, but that's where you start to have to change the type that, that you're using. So this is where you'd use fructose and glucose, a combination of that at a two to one ratio, because essentially the reason that we do this is because they are, um, they, they have different transporters, different uh, transporters that are, that allows them to get absorbed and utilized in the body. And if you train this over time, you know, again, you're just slowly moving up 30, 40, 50, 60 grams, and then you can combine the glucose and fructose um, carb powders or drinks or whatever that can allow you to tolerate that more comfortably. But again, you test it, you slowly move it up, you get the gut more comfortable with the idea of having more fluid, more carbs and different types of carbs. And then the idea is by the time it comes to marathon day, you're ready to rock and roll in terms of you've trained the gut's capacity to handle this. You've tested it out. You know that, right, if I have Lucozade Sport and an energy gel and I have them at approximately this rate of, you know, somewhere between, say, 30 grams up to 90 grams per hour of consumption, depending, you know, because you may not necessarily need 90 grams, right? But um, it can be useful to have that in your mind then this can be a sort of a useful way of, right, that's how I need to plan out my intra-training or intra-competition uh, fluids and carbohydrate supplementation, which will, at the end of the day, which is the goal of this, conserve your, your energy levels, your blood glucose levels, so that you can keep the ball moving, essentially. So that's the long and short of it. Very good. Very good. Well explained. Um, yeah, I think, like, the, just on the uh, having to utilize different transporters for different uh, carbohydrates like i think most carbohydrate formulas take that into account but that is just something to consider for anyone who might be using uh pure glucose or dextrose um as, as a carb source but i think i think the majority of products are a mix anyway um but, but you do want to check yeah you do want to make sure um we're not going to do any more on supplements because uh, we are running out of time and I am going to refer to the episode two of the supplement series that we did back in November, um, which is a 45 minute episode all about supplements for performance, right? So we've got electrolytes there. We've got creatine, citrulline malate, caffeine, the, the beetroot shots or the sources of uh, nitrates, which I was asked about, um, in that talk, also uh, sodium bicarbonate, betalanine, some more on carbohydrates, um, exogenous ketones, which can come up um, in this conversation about, you know, because utilizing fats again, um, uh, and some other stuff as well. So if you want the complete rundown on uh, supplements for sports performance uh, and which sports things are appropriate for because we were we were going to discuss most of those ones there that i just listed uh, in this episode we just won't have time now um but just refer to that episode right and we have um episode one in that series would have been on supplements for health in general which would have been relevant here too um as it always is but i think i think we discuss those in nearly every case study that we do anyway um so yeah i think with all, all those kind of uh, amendments, I think uh, we have covered everything. I don't think there's anything else to cover. Um, hydration, I suppose, like very, very briefly, um, 
you, you kind of set up hydration targets at about uh, 40 mils per uh, kilo body weight or one liter of fluids per 25 kilos of body weight. Same, same thing, basically. Um, and, you know, spreading that out across the day, titrating up or down, depending on how much you're sweating and the climate and um, your overall like requirements and thirst and everything else. And then, you know, emphasizing uh, fluid intake, you know, first thing in the morning and then around training sessions. So before training, during training, after training, um, if you do that and then just hit your ta- the rest of your target across the day, then uh, you're probably doing pretty well. Um, so with all that said, um, do you anything else to add, Dean? Nope. I think that's pretty comprehensive. Um, if you do the Dublin Marathon and as a consequence of listening to this podcast, you hit a sub four hour, do let us know. Um, yes. I was very interested to hear people applying the information. So, Yeah, definitely. Um, and on that note, um, please do share the podcast around because that actually helps us a lot. Um, I do believe we put out excellent information. We spend a good chunk of time most weeks doing so um, for the purposes of helping people. So please let us help more people by sharing the podcast around or, uh, you know, liking it or subscribing or leaving a review. I don't don't know what the exact metrics are, but that's what I hear people talking about in terms of podcasts. So uh, do that. Um, And then if you are someone who wants actual professional help with something like this, um, whether you're an endurance athlete, maybe you're doing the double marathon uh, this, this year, as you're saying, as a lot of our clients are, um, we have coaching spaces available. Well, Dina's coaching spaces available. I think I have one, maybe two opening up um, before the month is over, but I will advertise those if they do open up. Um, but yeah, look, uh, Dean would be more than happy to help you with uh, your sports nutrition needs and goals and you know uh, pretty much all of our clients there's some sort of overlap you know so there's like a fat loss goal in there or there's this there's as well as the performance goal or there's a, a relationship with food that needs to be uh, improved or you know it's helping some of their body image or you know maybe this person is doing a marathon and um they have fat loss goals but they also have pcos or ibs or something like that right so these are all the overlapping contexts that uh, we are some of the best at helping people with um, because of our diverse skill sets. So yeah, if you do want professional help with any of this stuff um, or anything related to nutrition coaching, um, please do get in touch. You can go to uh, triagemethod.com. I think it's forward slash online hyphen coaching, but we'll put it in the, in the links anyway. Um, Or you can, uh, reach out to us on uh, social media, on Instagram specifically. Um, you can send us a, a direct message there, either of us or to the triage page if you want to talk any more about this. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's everything. So um, anything else to add after that, Dean? Or shall we say goodbye? No, sir. Guys, thank you for listening. Always very much appreciated. If there's anything else you need, links for all is in the description and we'll catch you in the next one.